If you could open up to Colossians chapter 4, we have one week left in this wonderful book of Colossians, and then we start our series in Ecclesiastes in two weeks. This passage that we're going to look at today is incredibly simple, and I will teach it as such. The passage is very much connected to last week's passage that Andy taught on regarding open doors for preaching the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. So our focus is going to be on how to reach people with the gospel who don't know Jesus. And I'm going to give you some presuppositions from the very beginning so that you know where I'm coming from. And I don't think that these are just my presuppositions. I think these are scriptural presuppositions. Evangelism is not supposed to be optional for the Christian. Living a life of mission is not just for paid staff at churches or professional Christians, whatever that term means. Um, There are not supposed to be two kinds of Christians, those who evangelize and those who don't. Evangelism and living like a missionary, this is going to be the premise that I'm going to work off of because like every commandment Paul has given here in chapter 3 and 4, he doesn't really mince words or try to beg you into doing it. He just says, this is what God requires. So evangelism and living like a missionary people are commandments in scripture. They're every bit as clear as the commandments of do not murder and do not take the Lord's name in vain. Let that sink in for a second. I grow weary of people who get so uppity about non-believers taking the Lord's name in vain, yet they never mention the Lord in any other context except for when they're getting uppity about people mentioning the Lord's name in vain. Well, at least that person mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. You know? So since this commandment is every bit as clear as things like do not murder then I'm expecting that if you plan on leaving here and not murdering anybody, that you'll plan on leaving here and obeying this. Because to love him is to obey him. Um, What's murder other than taking the life of an image bearer of God? What is evangelism other than you as image bearers of God restoring the broken image of God to a broken and fallen world? The refusal to evangelize, it's knowing that we're created in the image of God, but we refuse to be ambassadors of that image bearing. Um, You know, our culture, you've probably heard this saying, we love to say in in the new modern grace movement that all sin is equal, right? And uh, that's good. That's probably helped us not have this hierarchical view of sins. I don't know that you can make the biblical point that all sin is equal, All sin ended up driving Jesus to the cross. So in that way, it's equal. All sin ends up creating you having a need for a savior. So in that sense, all sin is equal. But I just find it fascinating that, uh, you know, we want to say sin is a sin. And we do that so that we can make somebody else feel comfortable, right? Like a lot of you know that I'm, I'm good friends with David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, the serial killer. I go up and, and see him regularly. I love him. He knows my family. He prays for them by name. Um, and when I tell people that, they say, well, of course the Lord could redeem 
David Berkowitz's sin, because sin is a sin is a sin, right? Yet we don't want to look at lack of evangelism. On the other side of that coin is the same thing. Like, hey, if sin is a sin is a sin, then that means if you just refuse to obey the commandment to evangelize, then can you have it both ways? Is still sin is a sin is a sin? Is it the same thing as the thing you want to comfort somebody else in their sin about? So if you're going to be consistent, be consistent. Also, as I get to this passage, my presuppositions are going to be, um, I'm not going to be talking about if you share your faith, because Paul doesn't do that. You're going to see he just jumps right in to how we share our faith with non-Christians. And you're going to notice that Paul wastes no time convincing you that you should be doing this. I feel like a lot of messages on evangelism is like somebody pleading with you, like, please, you should do this. And now here's a little bit of guilt, and here's another plea, some more guilt, and another plea. The scripture doesn't do that. Paul just says, here's evangelism. Go and do it with an expectation that we will. And I'm going to explain that more in a little bit. But much like last week, there's also a famous verse in this passage that usually gets brought up in the wrong context, and I'll explain that as we go along. So last week's passage was about praying for open doors. This week is how to approach the people once they start to come near the open door. This week's passage is going to talk about really how to be a missionary of that open door of opportunity. And it brings up our three calling cards as Christians. Three things that should be known to the world when they look at the church and those who have named the name of Jesus. Wisdom, grace, and living with a sense of purpose or expectation. Those are the three things in these two little verses that it's going to be about. Because we know that where does wisdom come from? According to the Proverbs, somebody. No, not God. That's, a, that's a very similar. The fear of the Lord. Yeah, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you want to begin to have wisdom, it begins with the fear of the Lord. So that should be a calling card as a Christian. Grace is something that when they said in John 1 that they beheld Jesus' fullness, what did they describe? What two words did they say to describe him? That he was chock full of grace and truth, wasn't he? That should be a calling card as Christians. And if we know that we are aliens and sojourners in this world, that this world is not our home, then living with a sense of urgency should be our calling card as Christians. And if we kept those things at the forefront of our interactions, I think we'd see some of the fruit to answer the prayer that Paul prayed in verses 3 and 4. So let's jump into our passage. Look with me in verse 5. It says, Walk with wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of our time. So there's only two verses here that we're covering today, and each word is really important. First, outsiders, so you understand the context of who we're talking to, and I'm going to develop it more when we get to that word in its context, but just so we're on the same page from the onset, outsiders is referring to people who are outside of the Christian faith. This is not talking about how we engage with or interact with other Christians, though the principles could definitely be used for that. That's not who specifically this is talking about right here. This is talking to you 
as somebody who turned from their sin and self-rule and bent their knee to Jesus Christ and how you are to engage those who have not yet bent their knee and called upon the name of Jesus. In other words, last week's passage said that we should pray for open doors for the gospel. This week is how we conduct ourselves as people approach that open door in prayer and hope and just petition that by all means we might see some walk through it. So the instruction to walk with wisdom towards outsiders. Let's put a pin in the term outsiders for a minute and for a moment ask the question, what does walking with wisdom look like? What's the actual commandment here in this passage? Sometimes it's actually easier to define something by understanding the opposite. So what does it mean to not walk in wisdom? Um, harming the testimony of the gospel by living a foolish life would be a very, very simple one. That would be an example of not walking with wisdom. Expecting non-Christians to act like Christians would be an example of not walking in wisdom. A very popular one lately is just bashing on the bride of Christ as if this is not Jesus's wife that we're talking about. Um, can't stand it when I hear a bunch of people talking about, oh, I used to go to that church too. I used to go to that church. Man, how much do they stink? Well, you should come. You should come see this unity that we talk about in the Bible. That's not wisdom. It sends an inconsistent, incoherent message to the world. Lowering our standards to fit in does nobody any favors and does not produce gospel fruit that we delude ourselves into thinking that it will produce and it's not filled with wisdom. Reshaping biblical truth to make it more palatable to people is not wisdom. Preaching at people rather than being amongst people is not wisdom. And compromising our witness is not wisdom. So what does it look like to walk in wisdom? Well, I'll begin to break that down to you. The first one, and man, this, is, this should be so easy. Just be nice. Be nice. I remember seeing, you know what? I was about to say his name. I don't need to. A very famous TV preacher was on Larry King a few years ago, and, and he was just tearing everybody down. You could tell this guy was just an intellectual giant, and he was winning every argument, just smashing people. It was just, <clears throat> That's the way he was behaving towards the people that were on the panel with him. And this Hindu man who was on the panel with him said, can you just be nice? And the guy said, be nice. Be nice. No, I'm here to preach truth. I'm not here to be nice. And the guy asked Larry King, can I move my chair? What a witness that was that went out amongst millions and millions of people. I'm just blown away. Like this point almost sounds like just some goofy point that shouldn't even have to be said. But it amazes me that just the terms be nice should be something that we really need to cultivate and mull over as Christians. As people walk in here, is our reputation going to be? We were nice to those people. This shouldn't be our only reputation, right? Being nice is not the gospel. But being mean is not really a way to attract people to the gospel either. A second way of walking wisdom, don't get dragged into political stuff unless it's directly connected to the glory of God. 
I mean by that, having something of more substance than your opinion to back up the stuff that you're getting dragged into and maybe insulting others that don't agree. And if you want a perfect example of that, think of when they came to Jesus. This is one of the most brilliant passages in the New Testament to me. When they came to Jesus and they said, look, Jesus, we're trying to trap you. We've got these government-hating people over here. We've got these Roman-hating people over here. We've got these people that want to buck the system over here. And we have these people who are in bed with the system over here. So we're going to put you right in the crosshairs and ask a question that there's no way you could get right so that we could just lead this public, public attempt to execute you. So Jesus, should we be paying taxes to the Roman war machine? What do you think about that, Jesus? And he was, in a, he was in a bind. Any way that he answered that question. If he said no, then the Roman war machine comes down and hammers him. If he says yes, oh, so you want to support the people that are persecuting our nation and killing our babies and raping our women. Real cool, Jesus. So he says, show me the coin that you use to pay the tax. Whose likeness is on it? Caesar? Okay, render to Caesar the Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the thing that are God's, and moves on. He doesn't get caught up in the political crosshairs. He said so much by just graciously saying so little. Another way to walk in wisdom, repentance towards outsiders who have no context for repentance is so powerful. I went out with a bunch of friends one night. You ever do this? Um, especially any of you that got saved later in life. You just start reminiscing about things and all of a sudden you find yourself glorying in things that you know that you had no business glorying in and your conversation all of a sudden starts to get kind of dark and at the end of the night you feel like, ugh, that was just kind of gross. That was unbecoming. That wasn't wise. Well, I remember calling up those buddies the next day and saying, would you please forgive me? I'm like, forgive you? give you for what? I just said, man, it took my Savior everything to save me out of the stuff that we were just flippantly talking about last night. And I just feel really dark about it. All of a sudden, they were like, but we were talking about the same things. And I said, all right, well, if you want to hear about Jesus, I'd love to tell you about Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus has done for you, I'd love to tell you what Jesus has done for you. But you're not held to the standard that I am. I've repented of those things. You haven't. So for me to glory in them the same way that you are glorying in them is just not consistent with who I am, and that's not who I want to be to you guys. I mean, my one friend wept as I was sharing that with him. He had, it was like weird. He's like, what is this thing that you're doing to me? Like, I don't like it, but I kind of like it at the same time. You know what that shows? It shows humility. It shows that I'm not better than you. I'm not a finished product. I'm just somebody who Jesus has radically saved and now tries to live his life for the glory of God rather than the glory of myself. That's it. That's all that it shows. Another way to demonstrate wisdom is standing on biblical truth, even if it's unpopular. And I would actually strengthen that and say, especially in areas where it's unpopular, know how to navigate your Bibles. I know that holding to biblical roles of manhood and womanhood are not popular right now. Wisely figure out how to do it anyway. I know that biblical stances on sexuality and gender are not popular right now. 
taking hard stances on racial injustice. This is an interesting one because the whole, it seems like the world is awakening to this and it's in vogue. But you're going to find that if you really, really push hard against institutional racism in a way that puts your neck out there, it's not going to be as popular as you think it will. Now you're going to make people hold up a mirror to their own bigotry, to their own racial insensitivity, maybe even having to acknowledge that they possess prejudices. It's not going to be popular, but it's wise. Being willing to go against party lines and openly share things like, hey guys, guess what? Jesus is not a Republican. Jesus is not a white American. Jesus wasn't a Democrat either. But whatever those party lines are, man, it's so bizarre to me that in 2018 that you could still offend somebody by saying that Jesus was not a Republican. A person needs to get a worldview and some wisdom. But sharing it's going to make you unpopular with some. What I want to ask you is, so what? Standing on biblical truth is never, ever going to be popular. Jesus was so clear about that when he came and walked on earth. Look at this. If being popular was the end game, then your savior is a miserable failure. Wrap your mind grapes around that, right? That's crazy. If being popular is the end game, Jesus died with even his best friends rejecting him and wanting nothing to do with him. But the verse doesn't say be popular with outsiders. It says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. I want to spend a little bit more time developing the term outsider because it's actually the center of a lot of bad teaching right now. And... By looking at it, it helped me understand a little bit more of the context of the next verse. It's become very popular to say things. Tell me if you've heard this. Well, you can't really tell me. That would make no sense. But um, I don't know. Uh, do something. Like, stare at me if you've heard this. Um, it's become super popular to say things like, we need to get rid of insider language. No more talk about insiders and outsiders. And Pink Floyd said it in 1973 when they put out Dark Side of the Moon, right? No more us and them. Um, I've heard this in sermons by many an evangelical preacher. Um, it became the fodder of many books around the turn of this last century, and they were based on that faulty premise. And I can understand the appeal of that language. It's not difficult to see how or why people would get there. When we know that people divide naturally, we know that people are just naturally divisive, so you don't want to encourage that any further. So you say, let's get rid of the us and them. But it's not consistent with logic or scripture. When the Bible mentions insiders and outsiders, it's not doing so to drive a wedge. It's not doing so to put anybody on a pedestal or to insult anybody or to create an us and them mentality. That can't be the case. I can prove it to you. That can't be the case. Because we didn't do any more to save ourselves than the unsaved person did to not save themselves. Because we don't save ourselves. Jesus Christ does. And our inclusion as insiders wasn't based off of anything you did. It was based solely off of what he did. The only thing that you brought to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. So when the Bible talks about 
insiders and outsiders, what it's doing is it's using kingdom language. You're either in this thing that Jesus talks about more than any other topic called the kingdom, or you're not. And the way that you enter this kingdom is through faith in Christ. And the idea of us and them is kind of based off of this idea that there's people that are invited to something that you weren't. So just to prove that that's not what this is saying, here's your invitation. If you're here and you've not received Christ, you are invited to do so right now. So then, now, if there is an us and them, if you feel like that's what this language is saying, that is your choice for that to remain and linger. The reason that the term outsiders is here is to demonstrate who he's talking to. He's talking about evangelism. This isn't talking about churchy relationships. This is talking about how we interact with those who do not know the hope of the gospel. And there's a bit of a reason given to walk in wisdom at the end of the verse. It says, making the most of our time. Making the most of our time. Let me get a little bit grammatical on you for a second. This is a participial phrase connected to how we walk in wisdom to outsiders. So the commandment regarding mission is actually to walk with wisdom. And then there's going to be a second commandment in the next verse, which is going to be to let your speech be full of grace. But as you're walking in wisdom, as you're speaking in a way that's full of grace, you are to be making the most of our time. And there's two different ways that you can interpret this phrase, make the most of your time. It either means your time is short, or it means that the person who you are speaking with, time is short. I don't know which way you want to interpret it. It could go either way based on the context. Both are true. So I don't think that it's really all that important to mince either one. But either way, what Paul is getting at is that life, every life ever lived is eternal. Every life that's ever lived is going to have eternal consequence. It's whether it's going to be in glory with Jesus or forever apart from him. But make no mistake, they're all eternal. So this life is short. It's a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. I want to show you a video clip from one of the most famous and vocal atheists. I'm not usually a video clip guy, but this video just really arrested my heart. Um, he's one of the most famous atheists on earth right now and one of the most vocal atheists to show you that he even understands the deep ramifications of what Paul is getting at better than I've seen throughout Christianity for the most part. This is Penn Jillette, a magician from the duo Penn and Teller, and it's really good. Um, the man's an atheist, so there's one part where he doesn't know his way around his Bible. Um, give him some slack. <laughs> Atheists aren't supposed to know their way around their Bible. You are. Um, I would bet anything, though, at the end of this, you'll say that this guy gets it from a biblical perspective. So take a look, and then I'll share some thoughts as we close. Yeah. 
never seen the water show up. That's the only way to explain it. We have problems with show up in general for the night before. He wasn't in my bathroom. And he walked over to me and said, I was here last night at the show, and I saw the show on my phone. I want to leave for a complimentary bottle of use of wine, which you complimentary about, you know, honesty and stuff. He said nice stuff. Let me explain that. He said nice stuff. And then he said, I brought this for you. And he handed me a Gideon pocket edition. I thought it was in the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms in the New Testament. Okay. Psalms, just part of it. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I want you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm saying that I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye. He did all this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe.
remember being rocked by that the first time I saw it. And it's fascinating how he describes the power of one good man, isn't it? I mean, what if it wasn't just one good man? What if what he experienced from that one good man, as he calls him, was normative of his experience with Christians in general? What if the two billion people on this planet who named the name of Jesus, that that was the way they lived their lives in public and conducted themselves with wisdom towards outsiders because the time is short. And the reason I showed you that is because he understands what Paul is getting at so much as he's encouraging us to make the most of our time. There's an urgency. Brothers and sisters, your time is short. Make the best of it. Moving on to the final verse here. It says in verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I, I want to point out something before I begin to break down what Paul's saying here. This is a commandment. This has nothing to do with personality types. I know that there's just personality types that say, well, I'm just the type that calls a spade a spade. D. James Kennedy has a great quote. He said, you ever notice when the people that always tell you that they want to call a spade a spade are always talking about other people's spades and not their own? It's not a personality type. We're all called to this gracious speech that it's speaking of here. Every single Christian is to be a person of grace. And again, this is talking about evangelism. This isn't talking about church relationships. So when I say that every Christian is to be a person of grace, I mean it both generally and I mean it specifically, including such examples as famous people that you don't know. I don't know where people got this amazing idea that I could say anything I want about famous people that I don't like. Usually in evangelical circles, insert liberal Hollywood actor. Because they don't have feelings. They're famous. Of course they don't have feelings. It's not like there's a mass suicide rate going on in Hollywood right now, right? Too soon? That includes the person on the other side of the keyboard who you can't see. They're not just a bunch of ones and zeros. They're human people. That includes the way that we ought to speak to each other on social media. You know that my last social media post, I run the church's Facebook site, but that's just because none of, nobody else is willing to do it. Um, but my last social media post was something where I had multiple friends reach out to me and just say, that, that was really ungracious. It was true, but it was really ungracious. And it, it just tore me to the heart. So I deactivated and Facebooks and the Twitters and all that stuff. I'm not saying that avoidance is always the way to be able to grow through something, but for me, I just didn't see the value in it versus the struggle that I had to be able to be gracious with people with competing viewpoints on the other side. And I just want to encourage you that if social media is a platform for you to use a bully pulpit, you're still called to be full of grace. Not just, well, if I'm interacting in person, I'm called to be full of grace. But this is, this is just Facebook. They could take it if I just tear apart everything in their worldview. This includes a government officials that you might not like. That includes the vile racist stuff 
that the right said about Obama during his eight years in presidency, and that includes the people that want to refer to our current president as the orange clown. That's not gracious. It includes how we talk to the waiter who took too long to bring your food. Believe it or not, your steak not being rare enough is not a reason to suspend grace. I recently just read a Yale study, a Yale study on this that said, young ladies, if you want to tell the kind of man that you're dating, if he's worth sticking it through, see the way that he responds to wait staff if they mess up his order. If all of a sudden, you put mayonnaise on my burger! Like, if he's flipping out over that, how do you think he's going to respond when there's real problems if you guys stay together? That person just might be a psycho. And that might be God's way of telling you back out of that relationship before said psycho is more ingrained in your life. This includes the way that we talk about fallen Christian leaders. Isn't it great the way that we could just elevate people on the way up and just chop them down at the knees on their way down? You know who didn't do that? This guy named Jesus. He had this friend named Peter that absolutely just acted the fool and fell harder than any Christian leader I know of today, has fallen. And then Jesus has this little interaction with him in John 21. And he says, Simon Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Simon Peter, do you love me? Then go tend my lambs. He doesn't feel the need to chop down Peter. He doesn't feel the need to say, well, you were so great back in Matthew 16 when you were making this declaration of faith that I'm telling you, you're Peter and I'm going to build my church on this rock. You're not such a rock now, are you, Peter? No, he doesn't do that because he's gracious. This includes the stuff that you say under your breath about the people on the road who might not have the NASCAR-level proficiency that you think you have behind the wheel. If you want to get really practical, I'm about to close here in a minute, but I was just trying to think of just practical examples of like, I don't want to be a phony up here. What are some examples that would just hit my heart? This includes the tech, person, the tech support person in India who you might have a tough time understanding. But believe it or not, I've visited a lot of foreign countries. Yelling at people who don't understand English doesn't make their English any better. It's crazy, right? You getting louder doesn't make them all of a sudden more proficient in your language. You have to wonder what perception of Americans is at call centers in the poorest areas of India. The reason I picked India, it's not that you, know, you can't pick other nations, but I looked up the 10 largest call centers in the world, and the 10 were all near the Mumbai area. Look, let me, let me break it down to you real simple so that you can get outside of an American worldview for a second. You're already calling in to get tech support on a luxury item that statistically costs more than the person on the other side of the phone will make in two years. Just to put it in perspective, I looked up the three largest American outsourced call centers in India. The average yearly income of the person who's taking abuse on the other side of the phone, and this study came out last week, so these are pretty current numbers, is $616 a year. In other words, that mid-priced Apple laptop that you're calling about is two years of income for that tech support person answering the call on the other end of the phone. To make sure that my point is missed, this isn't about America and the way that America is perceived. That's not the issue. 
Your thoughts on the outsourcing of American jobs is not the issue. If you have strong convictions on the outsourcing of American jobs, and that's the reason why you speak bemeaningly to a foreigner on the other end of the phone that makes about as much sense as going down to Route 37 because you have strong convictions about Ray Kroc's business practices and walking into McDonald's and grabbing a 16-year-old by the shirt and just saying, don't you understand that McDonald's globalization is ruining this world? What fruit are you going to get? You going to get through to Ray Kroc that way? Well, he's dead, but if he wasn't, you going to get through him that way? Well, in God put somebody on the other side of the phone. Check this out. If you actually start to think as a missionary and walk with wisdom, the first part of the verse, God gave you a chance to be on the phone with somebody in one of the most unreached countries in the entire world. You look at it like that, all of a sudden, this is a little bit different, isn't it? And maybe it's screaming at somebody that you will never meet because somebody decided to move jobs to a place where you preferred that they didn't isn't the best way to walk in wisdom or speak with grace. So let me also say this. If you make it a regular person who's just judging people's hearts and motives, but you don't vocalize it, I don't care how gracious your speech is, you're a phony. A person of grace is somebody whose heart has been radically taken captive by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a heart that's been transformed by grace is. And then their speech and their attitudes reflect that there's this grace awakening. And now this thing that was dead, according to Ephesians 2.4, is now beating and thumping the rhythms of grace inside of your chest. And now you get to speak that transformation with your words. The mouth is merely a portal of the heart. And there's a problem with the typical way of interpreting this verse the verse is usually quoted in reference to the way that Christians interact with one another. And it says, let your speech be full of grace as though seasoned with salt. It's almost like this is the way that I should be able to talk to my churchy friends. But I just want to give you a food for thought if that's the way you've interpreted it. I have. That's how I've used that verse mostly. So guilty on, on, on that one. If it's tough to be gracious to others as fellow recipients of the grace of God, how are we supposed to be gracious to people who hate what you believe in? And anyone who says the words, well, you know, it's easier for me to be gracious towards non-Christians because don't even bother finishing that sentence because it's so not full of wisdom. I'll finish it before you. The people who have a low and unbiblical view of the body of Christ, it's easier to walk towards grace towards non-Christians because there's no accountability to when you don't feel like walking in grace towards them. That's why it's easier. The church must be known as a community of grace. We have to be. If not, what are we even doing here? It is our calling card, guys. Other people can offer services, children programs, good moral teaching. Grace is something that only we have. That is our calling card as Christians. If not, how are we any different than the world? But it is different than the world because we are the recipients of God's grace. Amen? And as God's recipients of his grace, we are to be eager to grant it and give it. And then our passage finishes with a conditional clause, so that, at the end of verse 6, you may know how to answer each person as you ought. When you're walking in grace, you're walking in wisdom, 
You're aware that your time here is short. God is going to give you the wisdom to know how to engage the person that you are praying to engage. Some application. Do you see evangelism as a commandment or merely a good idea? What would it look like for you to walk in wisdom towards somebody who might be difficult in your life right now to walk in wisdom towards? Where do you need the Holy Spirit's help for that? And if you could do this apart from the Holy Spirit, then we wouldn't need it here in scriptures. Sometimes being a person of grace is not our natural default. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. We're not natural people. We have a supernatural spirit who lives inside of us and guides us. Do you see your time here as precious and short to the degree that you're called to make the most of it? And the last application point is just grace, grace, God's grace. Let us be a community that is radically known for grace. When people walk in here, let them just smell that there's something different in the air and let it be God's grace. Jesus, thank you for your grace. God, it's such a beautiful thing. God, help us to be grace junkies who live a radically consistent view of being grace junkies and show the world that we are merely recipients of your grace who are eager to then give the grace that we have received so freely. In Jesus' name, amen.